0: Would you turn in your Bibles today, Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll consider the context, but for our sermon text today, it's verses 22 through 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, and Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. What's that got to do with Easter? Well, he grounds his sermon in Good Friday and Easter. Let's read. Here's what God's word through the writer Luke, who, uh, who records for us Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on. In your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you Now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, we bow in the presence of the resurrected King of His church and Lord of history, our Savior, and the one who went through hell on our behalf, that we might never need to do so. Oh Lord, would you by your Spirit this day quicken our minds to understand your word, give this the speaker the ability to speak properly and in accordance with what you have said and may we together be built up in our faith and love for the one who rose to save us we pray it in his name amen this last week uh, <clears throat> some of you if you're any of you astronomers or amateur astronomers, we had an event. There are going to be two this year. It's very unusual. It was called, on Tuesday morning, very early, a blood moon. Now, none of you here probably saw it, unless you were from out west, because we had overcast skies. Shucks. What's a blood moon? That sounds spooky. Is that Halloween? No, it's not. A blood moon occurs on a... a, uh, full moon, when there happens to be just the right conditions, and the the shadow of the earth falls perfectly on the moon, and it's what's called a total eclipse of the moon. You can look directly at it. It's not like looking at a total eclipse of the sun, because you can hurt your eyes if you do that. That's direct sunlight. But, But this is light that is refracted around the earth through our atmosphere, lands on the moon, and then is reflected back through our atmosphere again to the observer. And depending on what particles are in the atmosphere, you know, it takes different colors, maybe kind of gray, maybe kind of brown or tan. Sometimes it's a little orangish. And this last week it was blood red in certain places in North America where it was seen. My son and two grandsons got up early in the morning with their telescope, and they were wowed. They saw the blood moon. we think that's kind of cool and it is if you're astronomically minded but you know (laughs) it has biblical significance did you know that the blood moon has biblical significance Ooh, it's spooky no it's not spooky it's special God made the earth and the sun and the moon, and he made them revolve and spin the way they do, and so that periodically we have eclipses of the sun and eclipses of the moon, and sometimes they're total eclipses. We're going to, in about three, four weeks, learn about one uh, far away in Assyria, long before Jesus lived, but that's another sermon. You'll have to come back for that one. But God did all these things intending that they be signs for his people, symbols of something else. They don't make things happen. It's not superstitious. It's not magic. It's just something God gives a symbolic significance to, like he did with Noah and the rainbow. Peter here is quoting from Joel. Old Testament prophet, chapter 2, when he says the sun will be turned to darkness, that's a total eclipse, and the moon to blood. it's talking about a total eclipse of the moon and particular uh, atmospheric conditions that allow it to be called a blood moon. Joel is saying that's going to happen before the great and terrible judgment day of the Lord. Those are symbols of the, let me use the term, eschaton. The final day of history is wrapped up, and Christ comes back, and it's a day of judgment, and we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, the Apostle Paul tells us. And these are symbols of it. Some astronomers have done some research into it and have have contended that, you know, Passover was always a full moon. That's one thing you need to know. And so it could have a blood moon, and one astronomer in particular um, has maintained there was a blood moon, full eclipse of the moon that night, and it could have been a blood moon, and, a, and given the circumstances, might well have been, but in any case, a total eclipse of the moon, lunar eclipse that Passover. If so, well, was that just a coincidence? No, it would have been. The God who casts things spinning into orbit, causing them to converge at just the time he intended to point to something bigger than themselves. In uh, Matthew chapter 24, uh, we're told that the words by Matthew's uh, record of what Jesus told his disciples, sitting on the hillside on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the city of Jerusalem and on, on the temple itself. And he quotes from that. Well, let's just read from uh, Matthew 24, verses 29 and uh, 30. And um, we read, he said, uh, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John talks about just that kind of thing. At the end of the world, uh, uh, in his visions of what was coming, and In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, we read these words. I watched as he, Christ the Lamb, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And yet, these things, these signs of the end of the world and the bringing about of a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We don't have to be afraid. Oh, asteroids are going to wipe us out like it did the dinosaurs. We don't have to be worried about that. God has history in his control. He's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime... What was happening the week that Jesus was crucified and raised? Well, we had those signs too. Well, why? Those are signs of the last day of the judgment. Why? Because it is an intrusion, an eruption of the last day forward in time. So you get a glimpse of it, a preview of it, on the rocky knoll of Golgotha. The place of the skull known as Calvary. Where Jesus bore the brunt of hell itself on his back in the three hours of silence, darkness at noon, for the space of three hours. Of the so called seven words from the cross, the seven things that Jesus said while he was on the cross, approximately half were said before 12, between 9 a.m. and noon, and the remaining few were said. At after about three o'clock. And during the three hours of noon to three o'clock, there's darkness, absolute silence, and the suffering alone of the Lamb of God. You want to see hell? There's hell. The reality of hell is not so much flames, it's not so much screams. The reality of hell is ultimately at its essence. God's turning his back and, and removing his presence, or at least your awareness of his presence, from you. Jesus went through hell so that we would never have to. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Paul could say. Where, O oh grave, is your victory? Because Christ has risen from the dead. He went through hell. He didn't stay dead. He proved that the debt to an infinite God's justice was satisfied by the infinite God-man who went to the cross for you and for me. Death itself, you see, has been executed in the execution of Jesus Christ as he stepped into the breach in the place of his people. We'll speak for just a moment. Reflect on Jesus Christ's conquest. And then on Christ's reign. And what it means that we have the truth of Easter. Regarding his conquest, Jesus has defeated death by his crucifixion and resurrection. Verses 23 and 24 in our texts uh, find us. uh, Peter saying, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose. And foreknowledge, God's will, not set aside by man's evil choices. And you, he says, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Our human choices, our human will, is a part of a bigger plan. But God, we read, raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for a death to keep its hold on him. Why was it impossible? First, because he experienced the darkness of God's judgment for us in Luke chapter, or in the immediate context of, of these verses that we've just read. In verses 19 and 20, Peter's just quoted from Joel about those signs in the heaven. And, and what they portend. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verses 44 and 45, let me just turn to that. We read this. He says, uh, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's in Roman terms. That would be noon to three o'clock in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The barrier between God and His people, a barrier caused since Eden and the first sin, Genesis chapter 3, the barrier removed in Christ. You see, He's experienced God's darkness and judgment for us and He's conquered death And done so for us. Verse 24, it's impossible again. Impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Why? Why was it impossible? Well, he was innocent. That's true. Animals are innocent. They die and they don't come back to life. Jesus was innocent, but he was more than innocent. He was righteous and animals aren't righteous. They have no moral sense. You can train an animal but they don't have a moral sense of oughtness. Jesus and Jesus only was both innocent and righteous. And one more thing. He was the infinite God-man. Unlike any of us, he was God-taking flesh, dwelling among us, tabernacling as the te- te- a tabernacle of, of God in Moses' day and the temple in Solomon's day. God dwelled in him. In him dwells all the fullness, Paul says, of the Godhead in bodily form, the infinite God-man. And when he answered the bar of God's magisterial dictate, where is the satisfaction for my justice? Jesus could certainly say, I have satisfied it. And so when Jesus died, it wasn't with a whimper on the cross. Crosses, crucifixions were intended to take days to be an example to other people. That's why the Romans did it that way. Protract the torture. But not Jesus. When he'd finished it, he dismissed his spirit by crying out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then in the Greek word, I love it, tetelestai, it is finished. He didn't simply say, I'm done for. That's not what Jesus did. It was a cry of triumph. It is finished, and he dismissed his spirit. And the rocks were rent, and the graves are opened curtain, the veil, in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The execution squad commanded by its captain who is there, the centurion, the officer in, in charge who does this all the time for a living. He kills people for a living. And he says, surely this man was God's son. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the account of all the resurrections that Tim Faulkner read for us a little while ago. Paul says, if Christ stayed dead, we're of all people to be the most pitiable. People should pity us. We run around worshiping a dead God. We don't. It says, now is... if. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Now there were three resurrections recorded in the Old Testament. We could relate them. Elijah did one, widow of Zarephath's son. Elisha, two, you know, one was a Shunammite woman's son. And the other was uh, an unnamed corpse. <laughs> and that on the day he died, because they buried the same day before sundown, that was Jewish practice, uh, was being taken in funerary procession, and, a, and an Aramean, that is a Syrian raiding party, came sweeping through. Ah! So the processional was unceremoniously disrupted. They chucked the body in the nearest grave, <laughs> and it happened to be the grave of Elisha. As soon as the body touched his bones, he was raised to life. Why did God put that in there? Elisha's name means, my God is salvation. <laughs> it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would himself come to do. And in, in the gospel accounts, there are three that Jesus raised. The widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus, of, of whom, to whom Joshua referred earlier in, in our, the opening of our service. And then in the book of Acts, there's Dorcas by Peter, and there's, there's uh, uh, Eutyches uh, uh, by Paul. And, and that's not even including the two in Revelation, the two witnesses, whether they're taken literally or not, we could discuss. I think maybe they are. But, but the point is, there are people who are raised to life. What does it mean Jesus was the first fruits? He was not the first chronologically to be raised from the dead. How can he be the first fruits? <laughs> Got to understand what first fruits means. It means he has preeminence, number one. But number two, his is different. He's the first of a different kind. All of the others were raised soon after their death, and they lived again. They no- took up their normal lives, and as far as we know, they died again. They went through death. They get sick again. They get old. Not Jesus. He ever lives to make intercession for us. His body was able to be present with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus on that first Easter day, and when they recognized him after he'd explained what the prophets said about him, the whole of the scriptures... Next thing you know, he was in the upper room where the doors were locked with, the, with 10 of the 11 surviving apostles or disciples. And there he was. Now, there were handprints, of, uh, nail prints in his hands. That is the base of the hand. That was considered part of a kera, the hand. Uh, it would hold the weight. And, and the spear print in the side, I'm sure there were marks in the scalp where the thorns had bit down. He might have been unrecognizable at first, except for when he got close, and to those who really knew him, he'd been beaten and bashed. He'd been smitten in the face. Ever seen somebody really badly beaten? That was Jesus. Before, they even nailed him to the cross. Now he's raised. But there's something different, you see. In heaven, in glory, Paul says, when Jesus comes back, our bodies will be raised. Until that time, if we die, our spirits are with him, absent in the body, present with the Lord. The sting of death is gone. The victory of grave, the grave is broken. We're with Christ, but not until he comes again will he bring his saints, his own, with him, those who've died in the Lord, caught up, the grave's open, and those of us who are still alive at that time will be changed, Paul says, in a twinkling, and moment, in the blink of an eye, caught up together to be with the Lord because he is the first fruits, meaning we are intended to follow. Our bodies, we're told, will never feel pain, will never grow old, will never have goodbyes, no sickness, no sorrow. But only one in all of eternity with a glorified body will bear wounds. The Lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. The Lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lamb looking as though he had been slain. His wounds, you see, are trophies of grace, trophies of his love for us, whose resurrection is assured because he rose. Oh, I talk with people from time to time about what they think will become of them when they die. It's a serious topic, you know. What is the meaning of death? And you know what answers I often get? Some will say, oh, well, there's a, you know, it's just a, a shade. Your, your spirit becomes like a shade. The Druids and the ancient uh, Greeks believe this. And, and you're, you linger around for a while as long as you remember, and then you're remembered, and then you fade gradually away. Others say, oh no, what you, you just are absorbed into the cosmos itself. Carl Sagan made that view famous. We're stardust, and he had his ashes shot into space on a rocket, you know, dispersed. He considered that was the significance of death. Oh, is it? And then there are others and new agers say, oh well, we come back. It's just it's a wheel of rebirth. You've had many lives before, you'll have some more following. And the bible says no it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment there's a story the bible tells it unfolds this story has a beginning a middle and an end and death is not the end And for us as believers, we have the sure and certain hope of a resurrection. The ancient Egyptians thought that this world, material world, uh, had to stay the same. And and the body of the rich people and the the ruling class, especially the pharaohs, had to be preserved. That's why they mummified. If anything happened to the mummy, the ka, the spirit, would be lost in the afterlife. The Bible says ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Why? Why? Because in a Christian funeral, we say, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. You see, bodies of believers are still united to Christ. It doesn't matter whether they're incinerated in a martyr's flame. It doesn't matter if they're lost at sea. It doesn't matter if they're torn by wild animals and consumed. It doesn't matter. God has them in his hand. Well, what happens to the molecules and the atoms? Listen, God who designed your DNA knows exactly how to reconstitute it. It'll be you. Without any of the imperfections that I'm very conscious of in me. Our God is able, and he's promised he will do it because Christ is risen for you. And for me, the death of death in the death of Christ. Let's pray.